The year is 1981. The film is Melvin and Howard. Director Jonathan Demme takes the leap from low-budget grindhouse filmmaking into a slice-of-life Americana film. We find a down-on-his-luck blue-collar misfit by the name of Melvin Dumar driving through the desert only to stumble across a half-dead drifter who claims to be Howard Hughes himself. After taking him to safety, we follow Dumar through years of family turmoil, employment tragedies, and self-induced heartbreak, until one day a mysterious document arrives that Dumar claims to be the will of Howard Hughes, naming him a recipient of a small fortune. Is the will legit, or is this another fantastical dream of an unhappy and unlucky man? Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your hosts Antonio of the Cultworthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. Nineteen eighty one, the year of my birth, and Jonathan Demi has taken that leap from let's say low budget grindhouse genre filmmaking under Roger Corman and all those other guys, and really kind of doing his first real character piece that gets him recognition as a dramatic filmmaker. And what a great way to enter that realm. And get the recognition. And that's a big thing. When we think about it, man, Scorsese, De Palma, Demi, Jonathan Kaplan, they all had to work their way through the Roger Corman ranks of making these low-budget B-movies and women-in-prison movies until they finally got that movie where they're like, okay, this is what this director can do with a real budget and with a real story. And Melvin and Howard is that film for Jonathan Demi. What do you think about this one? This one, I love this movie. And you know me on simplicity and just character-driven stories. And this one is just that. And we talk about Jonathan Demi. This was his aha moment where right. he shows his true colors as a character-driven director. And we see that in his future works where we look more in specifics of character conversation, more character studies. This one was his foundation to the way the rest of his most of the rest of his career was going to play out. So this one is his sweetheart movie that is just pure innocence and is just pure intrigue. I think it's funny, too, that, you know, a lot of cinema goers in the 90s, they put Jonathan Demme as, oh, he's the guy that makes thrillers because he made Silence of the Lambs. Then he went and made uh, Philadelphia, which isn't as much a thriller as it is like a very emotional, heart-gripping drama. But when you look at his career of the 80s, it's so up and down, and so much of it is funny. Like, he did a lot of comedies. I think people forget how well he does handle comedies and how human he makes his characters feel. And that, to me, kind of all starts with this. You know, he got this, then we got something wild... Then we've got Married to the Mob. 
you know? So he definitely had that moment where he's like, okay, maybe I'm a funny guy. Maybe I'm going to make these, these funny films about real humans that go through trauma and relationships. And then also in the middle of that, he did stop making sense, arguably the best concert film ever made. But when I go back and I look at all of the films in his filmography, this is the one to me that feels the most human. It feels the most sincere and it's not stylish as he would later start doing in the eighties and nineties. There's a lot less camera work. There's a lot less uh, really intricate lighting and tracking shots. And one of the things he started doing in the nineties that I'm a huge fan of is he started getting a lot of these point of view shots, right? Where like the actor would pretty much be delivering lines straight to the camera. He did it a lot in silence of the lambs. Practically the whole courtroom scene in Philadelphia is that the lines being delivered to the jury, but you're seeing it directly just shooting down the barrel of the camera. He doesn't do that here. This is almost, this could almost be like a documentary. It is technically a biopic uh, depending how accurate the story is. But that's one of the things that I think that makes it so unique and sincere is that even if there's a, a story of fantasy, even if we don't know the real story, even if it is tabloid fodder, we care. We care about these characters and we care about the story they're trying to tell us. Yeah, absolutely. And I could have picked you as a caged heat kind of guy with when it comes to his work kind of speaking to you, just my opinion. But I like caged heat. <laughs> It's, it is what it is. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's execution is flawless on what it's trying to do. Uh, but you're absolutely right, because what I really liked about some of his future work be, after um, Melvin and Howard is, you're right, he does, have, he does capture a lot of those up-close emotional shots um, when the camera needs to be. But what's so special about this one, and we don't see it so much in his future work, um, but he still has the talent to really capture that conversation piece is whenever there is an up close shot in Melvin and Howard, it's usually during a conversation. It's usually during kind of a side shot of two people having conversations. And it's mm -hmm. really to capture that intimacy of that conversation. And we'll get into it, but our critics again, kind of mention that where the conversation piece, especially in the opening, it's engaging and the skill that Demi uses to really capture that conversation piece not just focusing on one character, but multiple. The only time we really see up close shots is really when we're capturing almost a pivotal moment where it's like a conscient, a piece of the conscience gets hit with one of the characters where it's almost like an aha with one of the characters. It's a very strategic move by Demi. And I think he, for the first kind of big character driven story, I think his execution was absolutely flawless with this. I mean, yeah, it's it's obvious that we're both big fans of this movie, and I put it on the list specifically kind of like in the middle of our first batch of episodes because I think we deserve to win. I think we deserve to win with the critics, and I think we needed to find a film that they were both favorable of and excited them because that's one of the things, man, that I think was such a big draw of At The Movies and Sneak Previews is we did anticipate the biting words of harsh criticism when a, a dog or a turkey came across their field, right? And they had a chance to like really talk some shit about a bad movie. 
some which have been re-examined and re-appreciated by people like me and you. But I think people really got excited when they found a film that they both liked, they both agreed on. And I'm not going to say those were few and far between. It's just we remember the, the harsher critiques more than we remember the glowing ones. And when we get to that, we'll definitely talk about it. But one of the things about this film that I think is timeless for sure is how many prominent filmmakers today look at this as one of the catalysts to how they make films. PTA is in probably the, the biggest champion I know of this film. And that's how I discovered it. In 1998, listening to the laser disc of Boogie Nights on the commentary, him saying that Melvin and Howard was one of his favorite movies. It's what got him really wanting to cast Jason Robards in Magnolia. And it was just one of these things that he had this connection with Robert Ridgely, who plays the game show host in this. Demi used him in everything. And somehow PTA's dad knew him. So he grew up in the San Fernando Valley with like Bob Ridgely hanging out at his house. So when it was time to put him in Boogie Nights, he's like, oh, I know this guy and I know exactly the role for him. So you know me, I like to talk about DNA. Watching this film, you see a lot of DNA of future filmmakers like PTA. I'm going to say even Tarantino to a, a, a little bit of just how some of the shots are composed and when he wants to bring some real human moments into a story. This film, I think, is a, a spawning pool for creativity for future filmmakers that were huge fans of Demi. Well, when we look at the Siskel and Ebert, they use the word like small movie. And I, I hate the small movie term because it's not a small movie. It's more of an origin story of a lot of filmmakers to be. And we yeah. take a lot and we both of us have praised the independent uh, film industry and um, all these small budget movies. That is almost like this on a higher level where we take a lot of these small stories. These are the movies that show the examples. These are the audition tapes. These are where uh, actors and actresses and get they get noticed because it shows the range of what they really can do. And it shows exactly the emotion they can put into a role where they don't have a bunch of special effects, where they don't have anything supporting them. It's just people and a camera and they're telling a story. And we sometimes forget when we get all these movies that were these independent movies, these small movies, they're telling a story. And these are some of the best movies you can watch. I love the fact that you used range because that is one of the things that I think uh, divides audiences when they see a film. I often criticize performances of, of Nicholson in his later years and especially Anthony Hopkins because when I see them act, I don't see acting, I see performing. And in a film like this, coming from the same director of Silence of the Lambs, these people are acting. They are not showing a range of, look how intense I can be. They're showing you of how human I can be, how convincing I can be of this blue-collar, down-on-his-luck guy who is always getting his cars repoed, who's always having his wife leave him because... He has delusions of grandeur that he can't hold on to a dollar. He has to spend it. He has to chase that, that perception of wealth and success, which is a story that still goes on today. 
There's so many people living above their means because they know that they'll never truly reach the point they want to be. So they will grasp at straws to be where they feel like they can feel good about themselves at the end of the day and that they've accomplished something. They've acquired something. And that is this character. Paula Matt is amazing in this movie. And he's been in a lot of genre movies after this, you know, most prominently known from American graffiti, right? You know, that's where I first saw him first recognize him. And then this film where you don't need a heartthrob. You don't need a glamorous movie star. What you need is this guy. This guy looks like a milkman. This guy looks like a guy you would get picked up uh, in the middle of the night on your way to Las Vegas in the middle of the desert because he's driving from one place to another. He has that blue-collar look about him, which is so impressive that the look matches the performance. It's like you don't hate him because you understand where he's coming from, but you feel the regret and the discomfort of the decisions that he's making and how it affects his family. And I think that's one of the reasons why this movie speaks to me is because you feel the emotions. You just don't see them. You feel them. This is a movie about middle America, and you nailed it. The likability of Paul Lamatt. He has some of the actions that we see, and if the character wasn't written well, we could easily hate this guy. But it's so relatable because he represents something that almost we all can relate to is just that normality of it, what we would do in situations like that. I mean, he works within his means, but when he gets a grass of good luck, that's when bad decisions start to happen. And we've all been there and we can all say that is we can be in a situation that we kind of get lucky, I would say. And then we over-exaggerate. Yeah. We were over when it comes to how we react to that situation. So when we talk about a character, he is the per perfect representation of how we view middle America and the situations he puts himself in. It's relatable, even though it's from a different time that we grew up in, but it's just an incredible thing to watch because we're engaged about the daily situations, the daily conflict, the internal conflict he has. He is not dislikable because he's completely relatable when it comes to how he treats his family, his job, the frustrations of the work environment that we see that shine through. There's everything that shines through uh, Paul Lamette's performance that it's impossible to hate this guy, even when he brings home a nice car and a boat. <laughs> I, there's so many things. Again, the screenplay by Paul Goldman is is beautiful. One of the things that is really interesting about this movie is that when they first pitched the story, they wanted it to be a courtroom drama, right? They wanted it to be mostly a courtroom drama about disputing the uh, the will and how it was a fake and it was going to get thrown out of court and no one's going to get any money. And Demi and Bull Goldman look at this thing and they're like, well, how about we don't even talk about that <laughs> until the end? Like, what about if we have Howard Hughes meet Melvin for the first 10 minutes and then we just follow the Dumar family for the next five years and see what's going on with them. And then we'll do the will shit at the very end. That's a great story because I mean, the name Howard's in the title. Jason Robards got second billing. It's you, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to watch a movie about Howard Hughes, like The Aviator. No, that's not your movie. You're, you're seeing bookends of, of that, literally bookends. You know, from the very first moment on screen 
Jason Robards as Hughes to the very last moment before the credits roll. It's Jason Robards as Howard Hughes where you get that little tail end piece of the story. There are lines in this movie, most of them delivered by Lamatt. There's one that just really hit home to me where when he brings home that boat and he brings home that new car because it's like the one thing he's always wanted and his wife, played marvelously by Mary Steenberg, and we'll get to her in a second, says, Melvin, we can't do this. We're poor. And he's like, we're not poor. We might be broke, but we're not poor. That line right there, I think, is the justification that so many people use when they are making bad decisions. You know, one person in this relationship sees the reality of what's going on, and then the other person, Melvin, has like this childlike hope and this childlike enthusiasm that everything's going to be okay when we, the audience, know it's not. But we cheer him on through that performance and through that writing, 100%. And what I like is we get that introduction to Howard Hughes, and even though we know kind of what the movie's going to be about, we don't know how much Jason Robards is going to be in it. We don't know um, how much of the story he's going to kind of be in. And as we go on, we're kind of waiting for that moment of things to hit the fan, but we're so attached to these characters, we just want it to keep going. And I think the pivotal moment, and we both have brought up that car and boat scene, but that was a pivotal moment where we truly understand Melvin's kind of mindset, his demeanor, kind of where we want to go for the rest of the story. And it kind of explains where he was in the past. We kind of understand his thinking like you said and we almost feel bad when he tells that story of this is the car that his dad had and he's justifying mm -hmm. it but at the same time you kind of want him to feel the conflict you you want to feel you want him to feel exactly the consequence to it because this will never end for him unless there is a stopping point it's kind of one of those lessons have to be learned but he also has like this, like I said, childlike enthusiasm. In a way, it's kind of like uh, why people like Forrest Gump. You just can't keep this guy down. You know, there are so many people, maybe myself included, that if I had to go through the things that this guy went through on a daily basis of having Repo Man show up every day and my wife left me again and I don't know where my next dollar is, yet he approaches every single day with this enthusiasm of like, well, I'm going to look at the positive today. For example to just say that I'm going to be milkman of the month and I get my free color TV to me, that's more important. And it outweighs the fact that I owe my boss thousands of dollars that they're going to garnish my paycheck. You know what? Fine. Take it. I just want that TV because that TV means that I accomplished something. It's a childlike approach to these blue collar, lower class American ideas and that is why he is so likable. But you have to have the juxtaposition to that, which is Mary Steenburgen's character. This is the character that really kind of tells the story the way that we see it, the consequences, and that we can't keep coddling this man baby and feed his dreams and feed his ego because it's just going to keep digging us further, further into poverty. Plus, there's that, that mother's love kind of thing where it's like, okay, she is going to take the daughter. She is going to, I mean, there's a touching scene where 
she makes like the the poorest sandwich for her daughter to take on the bus back to her dad like literally just swiping condiments off the counter and a big loaf of french bread that she could barely afford so the girl's got something to eat on the bus ride back to her dad while she goes and figures out what they're going to do with their life and she ends up being an exotic dancer like that is a character that i think some people if they're not paying attention can say oh well she just didn't give Melvin enough chances. And now here she is, you know, dancing on the stage and taking her top off. But if you follow that character, the way that I think it's written, it's definitely as performed. She is a reluctant cheerleader for Melvin. She is there for him. She does help him get out of some of the lurches he's gotten himself into, but there are points where enough is enough. And that's where, you know, that middle act takes off. And that's where we really get to see what her character does and the performance that she gives. It was worthy of the Oscar that she won for it. Yeah, well-deserved on the Oscar. And um, I have something for that in a second. But we also look at, um, it was said in a multiple reviews, not just Siskel and Ebert, but it's kind of a backwards American dream story, right? Where we take middle America and we have uh, Melvin that, kind of he's has that child like you're right but he also is quite brilliant where he does know his limits but he won't be satisfied with his limits he wants to kind of take the easy route he can't he can sing but he can't write a song so he pays somebody to write a song he has no talent so he shoves his wife on a game show to and guides her through the game show and we get examples of that throughout the movie so he is actually a pretty smart guy when it comes to survival it's not necessarily the american dream rather than survival almost where you're trying to get somewhere quick so it's almost a contradiction to itself but it's still almost a very subtle satire of how a realistic american dream film i mean it's funny because i think it really kind of echoes with some of the things we hear about today where it's yeah you're he's he may not be a smart man on books but he does have motivation and perseverance and we have seen a lot of people make it big on just motivation and perseverance. You know, that's what the the hustle is about these days. You know, I would say these entrepreneur types that are selling their bullshit online or Gary V, you know, people like that, that can really just take something that they've done as a side gig or as a hobby or as like this little passion project and then turn it into something big. Yeah. This is that kind of guy but in 1981, he didn't have the benefits of technology, internet, social media. But if he existed in this current day, I could totally see him being one of those guys that can figure it out because he's good at motivating people. He is good at getting people buy into his bullshit. And it's not that he's trying to sell them bullshit. He's selling them his own bullshit to make himself feel better about himself and a situation. That, that childlike wonder, like I said, where... He's not going to let all the weight of the world bring him down, especially when he's got his two kids. And even though he does eventually divorce his wife, there still is love there. There still is a connection there. It is, like I said, it's not the typical story that we would see of a blue-collar guy down on his luck. And that's where I think the film skirts between the realm of good old fashioned Americana and fantasy because the Americana, the slice of life that we saw in the eighties, especially in blue collar movies like the movie blue collar 
or Norma Ray. You know, that's what I think people were really into when this film came out. And this one gives it a little bit of a fantastical positive spin. Almost like you're waiting for that penny to drop, right? And everything go downhill and turn dark. And the fact that it doesn't is one of the reasons why this movie is so likable for so many people. Yeah, and when we actually see the great luck, when these characters actually get a glimpse of it, especially when we go towards the end, which we're not probably going to get into it right now, but we do have not a happy ending, but a curious one on the movie not giving too much away, but it actually does offer a little bit of a humanity to it, a little bit of self-analysis uh, that Melvin does with himself, where he goes through a lot of this stuff after the, I think in the third act, where he has all the stuff that he wanted, but he he's still not really happy with himself per se, because we have some brilliant dialogue towards the end that he wants to feel accomplished. He wants to feel like he actually did it himself, even though in the beginning half of the movie, he tries to take a lot of shortcuts. But at the end of the day, right. the humanity of it is, as humans, we really want to have that self-achievement. We don't want to usually have something handed to us. We can, and we're happy momentarily, and that's awesome. But it's different for Melvin. He really wanted to feel good about himself. And we don't get a lot of examples that he's really doing it for his family. There's nothing that really has pure evidence that, He's a family man that he just wants to provide for his wife, provide for his daughter. He loves his family, but the movie doesn't really focus on that. It's more about Melvin's almost ego that he just needs to accomplish something. He doesn't want yeah. to be middle America, but he ha he doesn't have the skill. He doesn't have the school to make sure he gets there. So he's almost in a cat chasing its tail kind of motif where we need to have him really justify his actions to really become something. And when he does accomplish something, the audience feels good. The viewer feels good because we're almost looking as middle America, looking in a mirror. There is a redemption there though, because it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the, the TV and the uh, milkman of the month, the notoriety behind it. And just the idea that I've, I've accomplished something, you know, when the possibility arises, that they may not honor this will if they can't prove it to be legitimate or authentic. You know, what's that? What could happen? Could you not make any money out of this? And he has a very great kind of closing line where he's like, you know what? I kind of understood that there may not be any money in this, but at the end of the day, Howard Hughes sat in my car and he sang my song. He's saying Santa's souped up sleigh. Like, that's good enough for me. So I'm not going to say it's necessarily a redemption part to him. I think it's good for the audience to recognize that regardless what the true story or the true source of that will was, that at the end of the day, if he didn't get any money, the fact that he believes that he drove Howard Hughes and that he believes that Howard Hughes sang his song, even if that dude wasn't Howard Hughes, he believes it was. He has a sincere feeling in his heart that that happened. So it makes us feel that, okay, maybe Melvin wasn't chasing a fortune that wasn't there. Maybe he just wanted to really justify the fact that, yeah, I did sit in a car with Howard Hughes and he did sing my song. I, I loved that because it took that character in a final direction 
that I feel some movies would cheat you out of. Some movies would give you that stereotypical expected ending of, oh, he just did it for the money. You know, they kind of dirty it. Well, also, we have Melvin that goes from the very first scene, the very first act, and he doesn't change at all, all the way up till the end, really. He's still Melvin. We have that innocence there where he did the nice thing, picking up Howard at the hitchhiker or to just help somebody. And we don't have that contradiction at the end. Like you said, they could have turned it into something of greed. They could have turned it into something diabolical, but they didn't. And even though with the ending, they don't give a full resolution to it. They could have inserted hints as a biopic sometimes does of hints that he was there for the money. And I love the fact there was no temptation there to really take this character in the wrong direction, to really cheat the audience, cheat the viewer into how we view Melvin. Because from beginning to start, we get Melvin. We get the middle American guy that wants to do something. He wants to accomplish something. And he has dreams. And when he gets those dreams, he gets excited, to your point, the childlike state, to the almost the exaggeration of who he is. And it's a almost an extreme accomplishment that just gets outputted from oneself. So I think the my favorite piece of that, given with the brilliant dialogue at the end, is the direction and the consistency from point A to point B. You were saying that you had something you wanted to say about Steenberg's performance. Uh, not necessarily Steenberg's performance, but the one thing, just mere curiosity, we have Jason Robards who... I believe he got an Oscar if I or Oscar nomination, excuse me, for this nomination. Yeah. So it almost raises that question because given the screen time, and I know I have this conversation probably twice to three times a year about screen time when it comes to what defines a supporting actor when it comes to a nomination. And even though I he was the one actor that attracted me to this movie because who doesn't love this man? He's a brilliant actor. Right. But the screen time on it, it kind of shocks me um, when it comes to Oscar time that he actually got a nomination. Not saying he did a bad job, but the screen time, he it was probably under, what, seven minutes, I would imagine, in complete total. Well, I mean, on the, on the subject of Demi, we're going to have to talk about Anthony Hopkins. It had 12 minutes of screen time in Silence of the Lambs and won Best Actor, not Supporting Actor. I think the other uh, notorious one is Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love. That's true. And she had five minutes, and she had the uh, Best Supporting Actress. I don't know. It's I, I think awards are political. You know my opinions on awards and and uh, grandeur when it comes to oh here is a token that says you did a great job. Uh, I, I think everyone should just be like you know personally proud of their performance. I, I consider the SAG awards more important to me than the the Academy, but that's just me. You know, I'm kind of cynical when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, but I, I like the fact that it was Robards because <laughs> I like the fact that it was Robards because it just fits the narrative of what people knew of Howard Hughes from that time. This guy's a billionaire, but he doesn't wash. He doesn't bathe. He has zero billionaire habits he's got all these like little ocd things the aviator covers it pretty well in his youth we can only imagine what it does to him in his in his aging years 
so I think the mystere behind Robard's performance of that is like, was it really Howard Hughes or was it just a drifter? Maybe we'll never know. You know, that's kind of where the fun is. That's where the fantasy is. I think that's the other thing I like about Demi casting this movie is it has all of just those that guy faces in the film. Bob Ridgely's one of them. We got Joe Spinell in there too as the the proprietor of the strip club. We get Charles Napier, a Demi regular, showing up as the mysterious man who leaves the will on his desk at the gas station. Dabney Coleman. Like, for a movie this small, as Siskel and Ebert say in their review of it, there's a lot of big names, a lot of big faces, and there's no small role in this movie. That's what I'm trying to say, is that even if it's two minutes of screen time or just a passing glance in the camera, Michael J. Pollard, who essentially has no lines as Melvin's buddy and coworker. These are memorable roles. These aren't small roles. They actually do something for the story. They do something for the progression of the movie, and they are catalysts for some of our characters. Joe Spinell is a catalyst for Mary Singbring to tear her top off and walk out of the strip club, right? You know, Michael J. Pollard, he's the motivation to make Melvin a better employee. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? You're really messing up here. Dabney Coleman brings this sense of doubt as the judge who's in charge of the case of the validity of the will, who 100% is like, I think you're lying. I don't think this is you know, honest, and you're going to sit here and lie to me under oath. There are no small roles in this movie. <laughs> so how about we jump into what our critics say about this film? going to start off with uh, Roger. He brings like the introduction to the review with a few little details he liked about the movie. That's a great scene there with those two guys mm -hmm. in the cab. It looks like it might be visually boring, you might yeah. think, but I was really absorbed in that, and you can see in there, I think, the relationship between those two people. <laughs> now, here's what I like best about Melvin and Howard. After that encounter in the desert, the movie forgets all about Howard Hughes <laughs> for the next hour or so and concentrates instead on the life of its unlikely hero, Melvin Dumar. Melvin goes through two marriages, three repossessed cars, several jobs, and such major crossroads in his life as being named Milkman of the Month. So right from the start you can tell that roger is so enthusiastic about this movie and in certain reviews of certain films you would think that oh yeah if you had your first let's say 10 minutes of this movie being two guys in the cab of a pickup truck in the middle of the night in the desert singing santa's souped up sleigh is that going to grasp the audience's attention is that going to get you interested in this movie for the next you know hour and a half but like we talked about before, the dialogue, the performance, and the way that it is framed has us totally engaged right from the start, and he decides to open with that on his initial part of this review. This is one of those reviews that I absolutely love because I, I'm sure you've been there before where you just watch kind of a smaller movie, and after especially a week's worth of crap, and you just have that just good feeling that you saw something so small that others can spend millions doing and they don't even achieve half the success of just a mere successful right. scene. So there's a lot to feel good about this. And I love the reaction between both Gene and Roger on, especially Gene's the delightful comment. 
because it is a delightful movie and it is an innocent movie. And I love how they really start that review with what really captures the viewer, which is that car scene. And like you said, the way it's framed, the performances, the dialogue, it's all on par. It's, it's spot on. It, it's a good kickoff to the movie and it's a great kickoff to the review. I think it's interesting, though. It's got to be said because this is a, a podcast about these two critics where it really does show the filmmakers responsibility on how they treat their audience and how they get their audience from point A to point B that I feel sometimes maybe misses the mark when it comes to criticism, because I feel if this was a movie that wasn't done as well as this film did it, these guys would probably be complaining about that particular scene. We've heard both of these critics say in so many of the reviews, well, nothing happens. Like there's really no progression in the story. This movie is the definition of that. Nothing really does happen until the very end. There is no progression of the story. So what we're doing is relying on the progression of the characters, of the performers, of the acting, and of the journey they're taking us emotionally, not necessarily narratively. So that is where I think a good filmmaker can pull the wool over the eyes of a critic or an amateur critic or even an audience member and be like, well, this is something that you're probably not used to. You're probably not used to going to a movie that doesn't have a save the cat moment, that doesn't have a first, second, third act defined with a conflict in the middle. This is Americana. It's a meandering piece of, of whimsy and of character. Altman did this. You know, Altman did this. He would make it three hours, but he would do it. So it is one of those things that I think they recognize, but we have to, as analysts of, you know, analyzing their, their criticisms that the things that they are championing in this film are things they also have complained about films in the past. Yeah. Well, again, we talked about from dust till dawn, they loved the uh, opening scene to that too. And then they just trashed it because it went in a complete 360. Um, but yeah, they, they could have gone in numerous directions with this, but to me, this is one of those that it's almost impossible to not be engaged because nothing really does happen. We just go on, like you said, the journey of this guy. And if we didn't have the execution from Bo, Bo Goldman and Demi when it comes to their creativity and their vision, where this character wants to go, along with Melvin's story. So they had a true vision. And in pre-production and the writing of the script, they have to know if they're going to focus on Melvin, they have to make this guy likable enough for us to follow. Because what's really the smart thing here as well is it never overstays its welcome. It has a smart runtime. It's not overwinded because we have that simplicity, just like our Melvin character in the dialogue. If they try and just elongate that dialogue, it's going to sound out of character for most of our cast. So the 90 minutes is an extremely smart strategy and the dialogue, even though simplistic, relatable. So everything just kind of lines up. So when it comes to Roger and Gene kind of taking this apart, you kind of get the messaging of where this is going to go right from mm -hmm. the uh, first act on. You're going to go on the journey with this guy. The question mark is going to be, can the filmmakers keep us entertained with and keep us entertained and keep this consistency with Melvin? And they do. So it would be very hard for Roger and Gene to really take this apart unless the filmmakers 
did kind of the dust till dawn 360 and vampires come out and they start battling melvin or unless the characters the performers did not bring the charisma that they did to the screen i mean that's the thing is like one bad performance could have toppled this whole house down doesn't matter how many great performances you had if you just had one person that wasn't bringing it wasn't pulling their weight and that has a lot to do with the director and the editor too man like some of these takes could have been dog shit it's knowing while you're making the film what's working and then when you're putting it together what matches what is going to keep this chain of emotions and of character development going without taking us out of it and that's hard. I think people don't understand that because I've been on set before and I've done a lot of theater. I know that you've done theater. You're really into the process. You understand that the director has to be on top of what the consistency of performance is. That is why Scorsese especially, he'll tell people to go take a half hour break and come back and mentally reset because you know that if you're going to get a bad performance for the first five takes, your day is screwed. You got to get that person into a mental reset and come back fresh because it doesn't matter how many takes you do. If you keep going on that same energy, one of you guys is going to get exhausted and it's going to affect the whole scene. So that behind the scenes moments, to me, when you're watching this film, I, I can honestly say that Demi specifically is someone that lets his actors do what they got to do and will make tweaks and adjustments in the process. And I think a lot of that has to do with how they rehearse and how they set it up. Steenbergen had a great story about she was nervous about doing the nude scene. And she was dating Malcolm McDowell at the time, who, you know, he's shown his cock to everybody at this point, you know, in every film he'd been in. And she told him, it's like, I've done the scene eight times and I'm just so nervous and afraid. He's like, you're looking at it the wrong way. You've already done it eight times. Like these people have seen you naked eight times. So why don't you just do it one more time and do it good? And she's like, yeah, why am I so nervous? Everyone's already seen me naked. And that last take that they did is the one that they used. That's my point is that you can exhaust an actor and not have them do anything, or you can get them comfortable to be who this character is. And that's what this movie feels like. They feel like they are at home in the skin of these performers, of these characters. Yeah, we look at a lot of that consistency with it, and you're absolutely right. When we actually get kind of in that performance where, because nude scenes, that has to be hard. It's uncomfortable. We get it. And when it comes to spending four, six, seven, eight to 16 hours a day on set, being in the same persona, it's mentally exhausting. At times, it's physically exhausting. And even when you're in a role that you're not used to or even kind of like this role where you're complete middle America and some may have it easier than others where they've experienced middle America, but I, some of the cast probably doesn't. Right. But to put yourself in that persona of how do you feel before you get that money, before you go into the, to the uh, uh, circus, that is the media, because you know how this movie is going to end. It's what you're going to do with that role prior to that, to make sure that the audience believes that you are this natural character that this is you're struggling in life. And it's a real challenge to have movies like this to really mentally prepare for. And at times can be a lot more challenging than even action movies that are physically strenuous because to have, 
you can convince anybody that you can lift 300 pounds in a movie, but to convince somebody of a different persona and be likable and be likable for 90 minutes to two hours, that is a true talent in itself to really have that consistency as a performer. And that's where like sometimes the award shows just really grind my gears because I think that it is more challenging and impressive to play a role like this and make it believable than to, let's say, do a psychotic breakdown or do a traumatic breakdown or do a scene where like you can just emotionally detach yourself and just go crazy or play a psycho. That to me is character. That is a performance. This is encompassing a real person and convincing your audience that this is no longer Paula Matt, that this is no longer Mary Steenberg, and this is this character. This is Linda, and this is Melvin. And so that's where I just like, oh man, like award shows really get me sometimes, because it's like, especially when you see such a varied group of performers and actors in the same category. And it's like, okay, yes, you brought this really dramatic scene and you made me cry, but this person disappeared into this this character into this film i'm sorry i'll go with disappear anytime because to me that is the one thing that's more impressive well yeah i mean if you're the average joe on screen it doesn't look good at awards time when you're not showing an overly dramatic scene on the clip so yeah you have right. melvin just sitting there <laughs> talking about uh game shows yeah it's probably not appealing to the audience watching at home so yeah you're 100 percent right uh, but the one thing i think that really missed and it's disappointing because as we get into this conversation, it kind of dawned on me that it upset me a little bit because we don't get a lot of recognition from Siskel and Ebert when it comes to the performances that truly did execute. They touch on it, yes, but these are the reasons, the main reasons of what we're viewing on screen that really held this movie together when it comes to the believability of it. And this is what was really missing, especially I would speak on my my critic Ebert um, that was really missing from his review is that recognition to the performers that did something to make him feel delighted, to make him feel that emotion and that giddiness to hop on TV and speak how great this movie is. So I think there is a miss. Well, let's yeah. play it. And the movie Melvin and Howard is quietly funny and perceptive as it turns the American dream inside out you know what i loved about this picture i expected it to be an examination of whether or not melvin dumar in reality ever met howard hughes uh -huh. and is the mormon will real and who cares this film is really as you called it a slice of life they forget that stuff pretty much <laughs> it is really just an investigation of what this sort of middle american character is all about all the products he's involved in and what his life is like it's delightful i think that's really sets the scale of this picture it's a small little film but absolutely delightful in every single performance it shows a lot of imagination on the part of the screenwriter, Bo Goldman, who started yeah. out with the story, and then Jonathan Demme directed it. Mm -hmm. Then instead of turning it into a courtroom drama, right. which would have been terribly boring with what the witnesses said and who was lying and what the evidence was and what the lawyer said, instead, mm -hmm. they have that at the end for a little bit, and at the beginning they have him meeting Howard Hughes. Then they expand the middle, seven years in between. How did this guy live? If you have ever wondered what happens to the contestants on The Price is Right, you know, when they're not, you know, go for the refrigerator. This is the story of what those people do the rest of the time. It's, it's a fascinating Just delightful. The comedy. film has gotten tremendous praise from critics across the country. I hope people don't walk in thinking it's uh, gone with the wind or something like that. A small scale, absolutely lovely film. Right. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I was going to mention it. I'm glad you did first. But 
there's something that's really magical here. They are so impressed with the film and the screenwriting and what it does for the delightfulness of the story, which, you know, it's, it's not a delightful story, but the film is delightful because of the performances that they don't even mention. So to me, I take that as a win for Demi and crew where they don't even take the, the time to pinpoint any flaws or inaccuracies that they're so known for in a film when it comes to performance or plot structure or, oh, nothing happens in the second act. They just keep praising how delightful and how good it made them feel. So that's a win for the filmmaker. I do feel it's a little bit of a loss for them in their overall encompassing review, like you just said. Like, okay, we're not even going to talk about Lamat. We're not even going to talk about Mary Steenberger. We're not going to talk about Robards. Okay, but at the same time, a win is a win when you don't have any losses presented by these two critics. Well, when it comes to Goldman and Demi, this is the win. When it comes to a true story, it should do one of two things. One, give emotional reaction and tell the whole story. Or two, encourage us to go out and research, go out and find out what happened. Those are the two elements that we're really going to see a good, true story. So it's a win for Demi and Goldman on that. That's their win in my books. But And I love that they got right. a lot of that praise because it set the tone for encouragement almost to what they're going to do in the future. And it does almost right. make me a little disappointed. We didn't see more of this team up because these two filmmakers worked extremely well together. And we see a lot of projects in their IMDb that they do, but it would have been a dream to see these two just have another solid project after the success of two main ones that they did after this one. You know, and it's funny that we're having this conversation now because I just finished editing our gorillas in the mist episode and we saw the exact opposite of this in their deconstruction of it, of how the liberties they took with this story and not really showing you the real picture of Diane Fossey and creating the Brian Brown character, just to be like that stereotypical, obligatory, romantic angle to the story that didn't even necessarily have to be there. I think that's the difference between when you see a studio film and suits tell you how to make a movie, and then a little low-budget film like this, where it's literally the filmmaker and the screenwriter and this handful of brilliant actors saying, okay, let's make this, and let's make it real, and let's make it delightful. You know, in Gorillas in the Mist, we had our really buff Australian photographer. And I have to say, I got really nervous on where this movie was going to go when we had the milkman finally have sex with the lonely housewife. So, <laughs> but I'm glad. And that's just to signify that they didn't go in that direction. It's just another kind of decision by Melvin. And they, to kind of Siskel and Ebro's point, they could have taken a couple different directions. And, they're, and I think all the critics and us included are glad they didn't go into that direction. So I'm glad they did point that out as well. Yeah, 100%. So let's talk about how we feel. It's, it's deceptive, right? Because we see how much they like this movie. And we've talked about the contradictions of how they approach a critique when it's a movie they really, really, really liked or a movie they really hated or one was neutral or one was hot and the other one was cold and what those conversations look like. It's the complete contradiction of one of the things that we talked about with the Frighteners where 
They didn't talk about any of its good qualities. They just wanted to talk about the things they hated. Too many special effects. It's ugly. It's mean. It's this. It's that. Without even praising the performances. Without even giving credit where credit was due for the originality and the creativity that that film presented. Well, this is this is the same thing, just on the opposite angle. They talk so much about the filmmaker, the screenwriter, and the the overall package that they completely ignore the performances, or let's say just those little moments of the cinematography. Tak Fujimoto, one of the best cinematographers of all time, don't even talk about that. How they spawn from they go from California to Nevada to Salt Lake City, Utah. Hey, you know, all over the place. And for such a great stylistic cinematographer to make something feel real and not stylish, to me, that's impressive as hell. To make you feel like you're in the real world and not in a cinematic creation. Don't even talk about it. So as much as I praise them for liking a movie that I like, I do have those same little you know things that you have about not really giving us more of what makes this film as delightful as they say it is. I think the problem with a lot of critics, and especially with Siskel and Ebert, when, and they once in a while will do it, they'll bring up the cinematography, the photography, they'll bring up the technical aspects of stuff they like. Now, when it comes to the cinematography, they do a great job here, but when it comes to their defense on this with a three to four minute preview on it, I wasn't wowed to the point where I can see them inserting it into about the four minute mark. But what I will, but what I did have a problem with is the woulda, coulda, shouldas and what this movie could have been spending a lot of time on that. A lot, a lot of time explaining the situation. Let us find out for ourselves. We don't need to know the entire situation on a critique. We want to know why it's good and why we should see it. So we'll find out the journey by ourselves, by ourselves when we actually view the film, we don't need, 75% 75% of the time telling us a woulda, coulda, shouldas, or this is what the movie is about, or even ruining and spoiling it to a point where saying, well, we mm-hmm. see uh, Howard in the beginning, we see him at the end, but nothing in the middle, and then they kind of meet in between, whatever it may be. We don't need to know that. Just tell us why it's good. Tell us, and this is a good time for the performances to really shine and tell us. We want to go see Jason Robards. We want to see uh, Mary Steenburgen. So these are semi-recognizable big names in the 80s. So it's like what Siskel and Ebert always said. They don't have a huge impact on the summer blockbusters, but they do feel a lot of the smaller movies they do have an impact for. And that's a power in criticism. If you can help make these movies succeed a little bit more, you want to go up to bat for these movies, and you want to go up and make sure they know why they should see this movie compared to a lot of the blockbusters that came out, the incredible shrinking woman, I think came out at the same time. So, so you have to make it compelling. No, I agree. So like I said, I can't let the, the positive review that these guys that matches how much I like this movie affect my criticism of the critics themselves. So I am going to give Siskel a B here. I like his enthusiasm. I love the fact that he doesn't pick this movie apart because he doesn't have to. But at the same time, the lack of clarity of why this movie is as good as it is, other than just saying that Demi and Goldman are really good at what they do, leaves me wanting for more like you said. 
I love the fact that he loves this movie. If he hated this movie, I'd be very, very upset. But at the same time, not the the best review to get me going to see this film as a cinema goer, as a cinema appreciator. You can't just tell me the movie is good. Tell me a little bit more. That's where I come from. I'm kind of in the same boat, but I'm going to be a little bit harsher on mine. I'm going to give Ebert two stars on it. Uh, And this is mainly combined if we look at the video and the written, because he goes on and on in his written review of almost giving away the entire movie when it comes to what the movie's about, what to expect. And that in a review, I cannot stand because especially a small movie like this, where we want to go on that journey. This is about human discovery and journey of telling the story. Give these movies a fighting chance and focus on what we're going to expect to feel versus what we're going to see. So to me, I think it kind of ruined that point and he gets overly excited and we can see it in the review the video review too he's ecstatic he's giddy like a little kid that walks out of a movie and i get it i've been there too i love those independent movies that make us feel that way but overzealous when it comes to the review to the point where it over explains the movie to a thousand words when a simplistic simplistic story you can do easily do to five to six hundred words to narrow that down So to me, I'm going to kind of give them a two star to it. And that goes to my point where I say that these guys got themselves into such a routine of being able to use uh, harsh and spicy criticism to build their paragraphs, to build their reviews and critiques that when it comes to a film they actually really liked, well, they have no other way to explain why they like it other than, like you just said, I'm just going to fucking paraphrase the movie in like my six paragraphs. I'm essentially going to tell you the story and that it's good. Yeah, I read I read it too. And I was like, he's really just giving me like an elevator pitch of what this movie is and that it's good at the end. So yeah, I agree with you on that 100% on that two stars for Mr. Ebert on that one. Yeah, and I, I think this movie has kind of gone under the radar over the years. And that's a shame. So if you haven't seen Melvin and Howard, this is one of those movies. It's wildly entertaining. It's engaging. It's going to make you kind of wonder and think towards the end. And more importantly, I've already said it. The best thing about these movies is if it makes you and encourages you to go research the outcome um, at the by the end of the movie. And this one absolutely does while it takes you on a 90 minute entertaining mm-hmm. journey. No, I'll agree to 100%. And you know, I went into Letterboxd and I read some of the reviews of some of our mutuals and some of our contemporaries in the podcasting and, and cinema review world, and they all have the same things to say. They all love the movie. So it's really hard to find someone who doesn't like this movie. And then I ones I saw that didn't like it, well, they're the people that were giving Thor Love and Thunder four stars. So it's kind of hard. But again, you like what you like, art is subjective. Well, everyone, like we always say, if you want to know our true reviews and critiques of these movies, you can go to our Letterboxd pages where you can see what we actually rated the films and said about them ourselves. And be excited because next week we're bringing a childhood favorite to the show. Justin's pick for next week is Batteries Not Included, which I cannot wait to talk about. I've got a lot to say. A lot of good, a little bad but mostly it's going to be sentimental because that movie means a lot to me. <laughs> 100%. So everyone, you know where to find us. You can find me at thecultworthy.com. 
You can find me on The Cult Worthy on all my socials, and you can find The Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast on pretty much any podcasting platform. And as for my friend Justin, you can find him on... Any of the socials and anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can check me out at moviewire.com. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next week on Back to the Balcony.